Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Welcome to the Startups Roundtable, where each episode attempts to draw learnings and experiences from the startup community. Tony Hackett is my name, and I'm your host. Today's guest is Jeroen Cordout, who is the CEO and founder of Salesflare, where they provide a sales productivity platform for salespeople that helps small and medium businesses close more deals with less effort. So let's get underway and meet Jeroen. I'm uh, Jeroen Gotthout, co-founder and CEO of Salesforce, and Salesforce is a CRM system for small and medium-sized businesses that essentially differentiates from the others by providing with something that actually works, like most CRMs, people hate them because a lot of data input that they don't really help you organize your sales. And uh, seven years ago, we saw that actually uh, a lot of the data input you do with the CRMs is quite dumb because, it, I mean... <laughs> Why, why are we doing it? It's, it's actually already available in another system. So our idea at that point was like, why don't we just build a, a system that connects to all these places, pulls together that information, offers it to you and make sure that you can um, curate it with minimal effort. And then based on that, uh, we immediately saw the potential of automating lots of stuff because as soon as you have data, so many more things are possible. And it's really that bottleneck in uh, CRM that we attacked especially in the early days and what i'm up to right now uh, is a good question lots of stuff at the same time i would say we're working on some cool new features like uh, custom dashboarding so you'll be able to build your own dashboards which is a huge thing and we're avoiding more and more uh, medium-sized companies so we used to be uh, doing only small companies now lots of medium-sized ones as well and now we're looking at the next new thing We'll probably go into um, lead generation features. We've already have uh, email sequences built in that you can even you can you can just send an email sequence, but you can also trigger it based on filters you put on your data. We do triggered uh, emails, and now we're thinking to go even one step before that. Like what happens before that? Where do you get your leads? Uh, maybe thinking about a bit of better of a LinkedIn integration, but those are things we're um, working out functionally. So maybe I shouldn't talk about it yet. Oh, very exciting to hear about. As we were just discussing before we started the recording, I'm actually a customer, so it's very exciting to meet with you today and to have this conversation and to look a little bit behind the company and understand some of the learnings that you have taken on board over that seven-year period. But I'd like to ask at the start, when you began to now, the journey of the entrepreneur, what have been some of the significant changes that you've experienced over that period of time? I think very early on, we, we started sort of on that startups wave. Uh, and here, I, we're based in Belgium. There wasn't much in the beginning. In the city here in Antwerp, there was one accelerator. And uh, there was another known one, uh, which was in Ghent. And <laughs> that was sort of it. But then uh, at the moment we started, actually, one big bank started supporting startups. They, they, they made this incubator here in the middle of the city. Um, and since then, that has has been distributed over the whole country. Like in every major city, they, they have a hub now with an incubator where startups, they can apply and they, they have office space. It's all free and they get workshops, all this kind of things. So the, so the support system for new companies uh, and especially um, 
in that incubator first try to have a lot of diversity, uh, but more and more also they go towards tech companies because that's where a lot of the incubation can needs a little a push, especially if as a as a region you sort of want to uh, move forward. I mean, there's already lots of cool stuff you do. Like here in Antwerp, we have uh, the second biggest port of Europe and uh, we have the diamond sector, like 80% of the diamonds passes through Antwerp here. And we have a bunch of other things that, you know, people are already involved in. Um, but uh, growing tech is a really interesting journey for many places. And I think this is something that we've seen in lots of places across the world, especially now it's, uh, with, with COVID. You see that a lot of people in California, they're all of a sudden, they feel like, okay, maybe we don't all need to be here. Maybe this is not where it exclusively happens. Uh, it's very expensive here. Housing prices are through the roof because it was also concentrated in one place. Uh, maybe Austin is a better place. Maybe Berlin is a better place. Maybe Antwerp is a better place, you know. <laughs> and uh, people can just go start a tech company from anywhere in the world. They just go online, meet with their customers. The main issue nowadays is, I would say, time zones. For me, it's uh, it's nine o'clock now, which is not terribly early. I had calls with uh, Australian people already at, at 7.30 because they couldn't do it any later. You know, it's very hard to sort of find uh, moments there, especially if you're on the, the east coast of Australia. That's, uh, that's the biggest pain for us. And then for us, beginning of the day is Australia and the total end of the day is San Francisco. I don't think we're going to tackle time zones, but uh, that's uh, the only remaining big issue, I'd say, with when you're doing business all over the world. You hit on a couple of points in just your opening commentary. First of all, you spoke about a small to medium business, and that's caught my attention. Just in the last week, we've had one of the major banks in Australia announce their first half earnings results, and they spoke a lot about the small business sector in a way, my word's not theirs, but in a way that they were pinning the growth and the recovery, profitability in their business on that sector. So it's interesting that you would say that. Another point about this very distributed universe that we live in right now, if it wasn't distributed a year ago, it absolutely is now. And when I look at what Salesflare is doing, and you've spoken about some of the new innovations, but that automation is so crucial and everyone is trying to latch onto automation to bring some operational efficiencies, I'd like to know how you work through the priority stack to work out what to do first and what to actually push down. Because I'm sure you have that many things coming at you. It's like the opening scene of Star Wars and it's just come <laughs> ripping through. So how do you go about that prioritization and decision making? Are, are we talking about functionality or in general? Yes. Yeah, functionality. Uh, functionality wise, um, well, a big part of what we do is tracking what everybody wants. Every time, if, if you as a customer, you say, oh, it would be good to have this, then uh, Taylor, who, who mostly talks to customers, will ask you, okay, okay, what do you want exactly? Why? We try to map that. We try to understand what the needs are that people have. And then we connect that with the needs of other people. So we basically, we, in GitHub, we have an issue, like people want this. And then this guy asked this with, what what that person exactly said about it and we track all that do the same thing so that if we look at some point at, at it we we know exactly why we should solve this because this person wants it like that that person wants it like that that person wants that that person wants that and then we can actually think up a solution that makes sense for everyone at least i mean 
that's not 100% possible, but at least like cover what people want and then transform that into a, a more simple solution, at least towards the users. Maybe on the, on the back end, it's more complex to make, but at least towards the users, it shouldn't be something that they don't understand because if we develop something they, they don't understand, they won't use it, then we didn't solve the, the, what, what they were looking for, right? But then you asked about prioritization. So I, this is where it starts, just to paint the picture there. We then have uh, thousands of these issues, uh, literally, but only a, a small percentage of the, those are very popular. We don't have this kind of voting thing online because then we cannot go into the same depth, like why people want stuff. And then we lose all the information to build things. So that's why we gather through conversations rather than putting up a voting board. But then we see which ones are most often asked. And these then go through a prioritization process where we link them back to one, our vision. Like, where do we see the product go? What is it that, why do we build this? For whom? And we give it a, a score. That's how well it fits with the vision. Then we give it scores on different parts of business impact on Salesforce. Like, if we develop this, are more people going to use Salesforce? Are more people going to get on a paid plan? Are more people going to, you know, stay with us? Or are we going to have to deliver more support or less support? And we map all these things out. And then we turn that into a, a, a final score. And that final score is not, it's not that the, the thing with the, the highest score we necessarily make, but we, we at least have a, a strong indicator, like maybe we should focus on this. We then compare that with the amount of time we have uh, to develop uh, things, which is always limited. And then we also, for instance, now with the Legion stuff that I was talking about, the LinkedIn integration, for instance, lots of people ask for but sourcing leads, nobody thought about asking us about that. So we don't see that in our in our data. So what we did is some additional research, and uh, there seemed to be a whole lot of enthusiasm for it. So I, I sent it out to a few thousand people. I uh, made a selection of, of, of very active people on Salesforce. I think I got back 150 responses or so, which is huge for, for a survey. And in there, also asked a series of questions like how much you spend on it and, and how many people, I mean, how much do people work on it? How happy are you with it and stuff? For instance, the how happy people are with the lead generation was, a, I think, a 5.2 on average on 10. Uh, so not a terribly high score. Yeah, so we definitely feel like there's something there. And, and apparently the, the accuracy of data and sourcing that is the major issue. So that's we're looking for a solution for that now. How do you drive the change then? Because it's not just about... The, say the salespeople in a team, but it's about the sales manager and general managers. How do you make sure that they're really on board to affect the change that can leverage the great functionality that you're building? I think it, it needs to come partly from our customer, but we usually um, guide them a, a slight bit. That's what, that's what salespeople do, right? So I think what the, the most important things they can do is first think about what they want to solve. Always when you get software, what, what is the, the issue exactly? The issue is not called CRM. <laughs> it's probably because uh, we need to um, follow up leads and not let them uh, slip through the cracks. We have an e-commerce store and we need to organize the back end. Or we, uh, we have a real estate company who just want to stay in touch with people. Or you know, there's whole lots of different issues that might lead to a CRM. But if you just type CRM into Google, you're not necessarily going to find the right one for you. You first need to figure out what you need, right? Then uh, next step is um, involving the sales team. 
In most cases, it all hinges, except if you have an e-commerce store and it's the backend or something, it all hinges on the sales team. It's the bottleneck. If they don't use it, then the whole system falls apart because you, you don't have the data. So involving the sales team in the decision helps. You'll end up with something they want to use. Plus, you'll have a bit more buy-in when you actually involve them than when you don't, if you just impose it. Then from there, um, it's important to or get something that the sales team understands then and all this kind of stuff. It's important that uh, there's a little bit of training uh, going like like to, to make sure that they use the, the software to its fullest potential. But what's what's uh, a point that is, is most often forgotten is, is actually then going beyond that. And it's not very complicated, but it's deciding how you're going to use it. Software can very often be used in, in many different ways. And if you... Re- like have a team of five or 10 or whatever, going to use the same system and they all use it in a different way. Uh, very quickly, you end up with some sort of mess where you don't know if you look at a, at a customer or a piece of data, like what does this mean? Because the one person might mean this with, with it and the other person might mean that. And some person might make opportunities at the sun point and the other person not and drag them to another stage. And you know, <laughs> all those kind of things. If you don't just talk to each other and say, how are we going to do this? Write a little playbook. It doesn't have to be long. Then it, it becomes very hard to, to make sense of things after a while. How far out do you build your R&D planning? So you're talking about deciding what the roadmap's going to be. Do you think hard year out and softer two years out, or is it shorter window? Uh, much, much shorter, yeah. I think the max we planned ahead already was at some point six months. Now we're planning... Three months ahead or something, not more than that. I mean, we plan as far ahead as we need to, in the sense that we want to have all the requirement scoping, functional scoping, technical scoping done well before the next thing gets developed. But we're not going to start earlier than that because things might change and we want to be ready to change and not be stuck in some uh, endless uh, roadmap. I find the SalesFlare site a very interesting and attractive site to me as a seller based on the content that you provide. So even if I wasn't a customer, wasn't a user of the software, I think that there are some great topics and articles that are surfaced through your site. That's obviously a conscious decision. How do you see content playing into a go-to-market and a a sales attract capture process inside your business? Uh, There's different levels of creating content. Uh, I mean, like there's content and let's say at different levels in, this, in, the, in the funnel or whatever, different stages in the sales cycle. Or you can have uh, generally interesting content for your audience that often drives a lot of traffic. And, but you can also have content that is much more related to your software or some, something in the middle. We write a bit of everything. In the beginning, we were mostly writing it to, let's say, get people interested. We would write playbooks and all kinds of stuff. And then we would share it in groups not not really shared but like share the drafts in groups and ask people their their opinion and it was all kinds of stuff that people were, were figuring out themselves and we went into some depth and they all got excited and i was good to put sales on the map somehow but since then we've shifted a lot towards uh seo but we don't write this kind of empty uh, seo articles just stuffed with keywords and the article themselves teach you nothing what we try is to like you follow us on social media you will actually find things that you're you well i 
I hope at least, uh, that you're interested to read. But they're also in a written in such a way that if you would be uh, the search on Google, that it, it would be interesting for you as well, that it would answer the question you have. At the moment, you, you search, for instance, SaaS sales. That's a recent article that you're like wondering SaaS sales and that you find what, what you're expecting to find and that the, the reading experience goes in such a way that like you have with, when you have an email with a good subject line and a good preview text and then people start to read and they keep reading, that that experience is, is somehow recreated. So you're in, that's my feedback to you. And that's been my experience. I think the articles to me as a seller are valuable. So yep, keep, whatever you're doing and how you're doing it, please keep doing it. <laughs> it's great. Question I do have for you. If there's somebody listening that was uh, thinking about starting their own business or might be a, a young founder recruiting, how do you think through recruiting now? And what might be one or two tips that you would pass on? Be very careful with recruiting. Uh, first of all, don't recruit too early. Don't recruit before you've done the job yourself. In, in many cases, as a founder, like don't don't recruit a salesperson before you've sold yourself ten times or something. And uh, that just doesn't make sense because it makes your your learning process so much slower. If you take it on directly, uh, you can iterate very quickly with your product, with the way you position it, with all these kind of things. If there's a salesperson in between you and the customer, it becomes way harder. And then second tip is uh, uh, make sure you hire the right people. That by itself is not really a tip, I guess, but I would say we, we made some, some major mistakes in the past. The way we found we can avoid them is uh, the following. First, don't involve only one person of the company in a hiring decision, involve a few people. It will make that there's different opinions, uh, plus it's easier to judge culture fit. Different people are involved. Secondly, ask for uh, referrals. Referrals are generally uh, positive, obviously, otherwise people wouldn't uh, wouldn't give you the, the names and e- phone numbers. But if you dig a little bit deeper, uh, people are also happy to, to give you their flaws. Maybe, maybe uh, covered up slightly, but you'll hear things, which is helpful to sort of know the the good and the bad of what you can expect. But that by itself will not do it. What I also highly recommend is somehow trying to work together on something. For some jobs, that's easier than others. But, you know, there's this task you have that you're looking at and you just pick one of those and you say, would you be able to do this? And you work on it together. And then you very quickly can feel also how a collaboration would work, what the the interaction would feel like, which is also very often where things uh, go south, where, where you, know, you know, you hire someone, lots of high expectations, and then they come and it, it doesn't flow very well. You know, those are, those are very different things to do, because if you hire the wrong person, it's such a mess. First, you're trying to keep, get someone to a certain level. Like I can fix this. If we just, if we just go along with this for a bit longer, it will be okay. In the, if the culture fit is uh, is completely off, that that's a, a much quicker shock even. And then throughout that period, as you're putting in a lot of energy to make sure it works, which drains a lot of energy from you because you well, you try to do your own stuff, but at the same time you're you're spending an extraordinary amount of of energy to onboard someone. At some point comes the the even harder decision, and it's to fire the person. Add all that up, plus the money it costs. When you we're flooded with data and we rely on it so much, do you find it easy to weave in experience and intuition into data? How, how do you think that through and know when to stop looking at the data? I always take a distance from data. Like I, um, 
I will investigate it, look for clues, and I look from a distance like, does this make sense? And then I see what the, because there's always imperfections when you're sourcing data. You always see like, okay, this data now, it looks like that, but actually that's also because that that makes that you can always put it into perspective. Finding these flaws will make that you don't just blindly believe in data, but because that's nowadays uh, often um, a mistake people make. One of the, the, the major learnings for me there was um, in business school, we had this business game and we all, all the different teams at all built models of how the market was supposedly working and stuff. At some point, we acquired one of the other companies that was possible in the game. The, the guy who had built the model for the other team that we acquired, he was all like, no, it's not possible. It should have been like this. It should have been like this. We, we did that and I don't understand. And then you just have a little look at it. And it seems that there's this one assumption he made, which really didn't pan out. And that made the whole model break and that it was providing them seemed logical until you, you know, you see that thing. And that happens across the board. Like you might, might make a decision based on something you see in Google Analytics until you then figure that, oh, actually, that might also be because. So always take it with a pinch of salt and uh, think it through a little better and, and don't just don't just make blind decisions based on it. A great response and, and one of the most real answers to that question I've ever heard, actually. So thank you for sharing that. I wonder if in closing you could share your thoughts around coaches and mentors, your experience. Once again, if there were some young founders or people thinking about starting their own, how would you encourage them to think about looking for and being able to decide on what they need from a coach or a mentor? I personally don't have amazing coach or mentor experience, so it's very hard for me to uh, give great advice there. What really worked for us, and that is um, becoming part of an incubator, sitting together with people who are going through the same journey at the same time. Uh, you can also be part of Facebook groups. There, there's some good ones and some bad ones out there, Reddit communities. But the best thing is really to be, which is hard nowadays, <laughs> To be physically uh, in between people who are who are working on the same journey because there's so much to learn. And in these incubators, you also very often have uh, experienced entrepreneurs involved that are happy to connect with you to point out some of the, the, the mistakes you might be making. But again, they are also don't fully rely on that because every coach or mentor might have a different opinion and might send you down a different path. And if you follow them all, then you're just running in circles. Keep listening to your own uh, intuition as well as to where you think things should go. But take it as a sort of uh, another data point. And if you hear the same thing uh, a bunch of times, then there might be something there. It's not necessarily anything there. It might also be that people are thinking outdated things or whatever, but still consider it. I think you've left a strong message over the last few pieces that we've discussed about believing in yourself and backing your own knowledge and judgment in the space you live in. Look for inputs, but don't let them be blinding you to uh, to your own path. Yeah, that's also very, very dangerous nowadays. You know, there's so many movements going on that are often not really backed by anything. I mean, we all know about all the, the recent developments of gurus standing up for whatever, whether it is the newest Facebook ads development or it's Bitcoin or it's, you know, I mean, and, and there's there's often stuff in there. For instance, I have 
bitcoins. I do believe it's going somewhere, but a lot of it is also pure gold stuff. And if you just go along with things also that you hear a few times, you just might be going along with some kind of new belief that is not grounded in anything. Jeroen, thank you for taking the time today to share knowledge and insights. You've really given some fresh knowledge and content to the audience of this podcast, so I genuinely appreciate it. It's really great to meet you, having been a user of your software for yeah, three years me. now. That's, that's a real thrill for me. I wish you many more years of success and be wonderful to stay in touch. Thank you. Same. It was fun. A tremendous amount of experience and insight shared by Jeroen today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Feedback is always appreciated and bye for now.